Expecting a baby can be a very exciting time. Announcing pregnancy is one of life's joyful moments. In recent years, it's been a trend for expectant couples to have a gender reveal party, usually, usually involving an explosion of a balloon or a, or a ball revealing the traditional confetti colours of pink or blue. But when Corinne told me she was pregnant with Joel, it was more of a relief for us than a blue explosion. We'd been married for almost 10 years and after several attempts at IVF that were unsuccessful, we had one more attempt left before having to seriously reconsider our parenting options. A mate of mine who was a Presbyterian minister in Dubbo and I had planned to go to a conference in the United States and we'd be gone for three weeks. And while I left the country, Corinne headed to the clinic. My mate Wayne and I had a great time in the US. We spent a couple of days in New York City, flew, around, flew up to Niagara Falls, did some sightseeing, even caught a game of baseball and a baseball in Toronto. We went to a conference in Colorado Springs and spent the week being taught by a man named Larry Crabb. We went to Outback Steakhouse, but we ate lots of American short ribs. We went from Colorado to California and hired a car from LA and drove up to San Francisco. We rode around on cable cars and went to Alcatraz and drank Starbucks before it was a thing that was here. We drove the 101 Coast Road called the Big Sur from San Francisco all the way down to Los Angeles. And before boarding home, we stayed a night in Anaheim and planned to go to Disneyland the next day. But that night in Anaheim, or should I say very early the next morning, I rang her in to tell her about my endeavours and to let her know that I was coming home, only to discover that she'd been desperately trying to make contact with me. At two o'clock in the morning, in a very cheap hotel room in South Los Angeles, my wife of 10 years in Australia told me that she was pregnant and we were expecting. I've got to say, I didn't get much sleep that night. And Wayne and I went to Disneyland the next day, but it was far from the happiest place on earth. All I wanted to do was come home. Friends, we're in our series, the final chapters of Genesis, a series called The Left Hand of God. God at work behind the scenes. God involved in the details and drama, bringing about his glorious promises to Abraham amongst the mess of our brokenness and our sin. And sitting behind it, everything... Sitting behind it all is a sovereign God who is always at work to fulfill his promises. Genesis 37 to 50 focuses on the life of Joseph, but this is still the story of Jacob. And if you were here with us last week, you would have seen how this is still about Jacob. Strained relationships, dysfunction, unfairness, the destructive patterns on repeat by family, jealousy, favouritism, sibling rivalry, deception, conspiracy and absenteeism all come to life again in the next generation because of the life of Jacob. You see, we assume this story is about Joseph, but Genesis 37 verse 1 tells us that these are the generations of Jacob. This is the ongoing story of Israel. These are the stories of Jacob and his sons. And it's important for us to keep that in mind because otherwise chapter 38 seems like some major interruption, like a story that's diverting our attention from Joseph that we didn't want to hear and we don't like interruptions, do we? Now I've got to admit that this chapter is already weird enough. But these are the generations of Jacob. Along with Reuben and, their, and also his, uh, 
along with Reuben, it was also Judah's idea not to take the life of their brother Joseph. However, the difference between these two brothers, Reuben, the firstborn son of Leah and Jacob, and Judah, the fourth son of Leah and Jacob, is that even though Judah didn't want him killed, he still wanted Joseph taken out of the picture. Joseph uh, was sold into slavery by Judah. And we met up with, and we'll meet up with Joseph again next week, who's now on his way to Egypt. But for now, our focus is on Judah, and more specifically, Judah and his sons. See that with me, won't you? Chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite. His name was Hariah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. There's a few things here for us to notice, friends. Keep your eyes on the passage. Judah has not only turned aside from his brothers, which is a nice way of saying he's now gone rogue, but Judah has also turned native and he's taken a bride from among the Canaanites. But that was not the practice of Isaac and not the marriage arrangements for Jacob. Isaac and Jacob were directed by their fathers very clearly, don't marry Canaanites. The words are on the screen here behind me, Genesis 28 verses 1 and 2. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must take you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Pretty clear, right? Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Jacob takes two. The practice was to marry within the family. Not because they were racist, and not because mixed marriage was a sin. It isn't but because they are the people of God. God's promises to Abraham, friends, are generational. They get passed down. But now Jacob's son, Judah, marries a local girl. In time, this will be legislated against in Israel's law. Israel shall not intermarry with the nations. That's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Again, the words behind me. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, there they are, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away from your sons from following me to serve other gods." After only three generations of God's promises, Judah is already breaking marriage protocols. That's the first thing I wanted you to notice. Judah and Shua have three sons together, sons named Ur, Onan and Shelah. Ur makes mistakes, Onan makes submissions and Shelah won't be given to one. But then Judah takes a wife for his eldest son, Ur, which sounds like a hesitation, but really it's just another huge mistake. Look there, verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We're not told of Tamar's nationality, but I think it's safe to assume that she's not from Padan Aram either. 
Judah has taken a daughter from the nations and given her to his son for marriage. Judah is not only repeating his own mistakes, but now paying them forward for the generations to come. Now, clearly, Ur has made his fair share of errors, which is why the Lord puts him to death. But with Tamar now widowed and childless, expectations of passing on the line of Judah now fall to Onan, Judah's second son. I told you this passage was weird. Just wait, it's going to get even weirder. But here's the other thing that I want us to notice. Another thing that's not been legislated in Judean law, Israel's law yet. In Israel, it was the role of the younger brother, hear me now, to extend his older brother's family line if he died. God's promises are generational. The promises of God are passed down. See that with me, Deuteronomy 25 verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother and his name may not, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. I'm not sure how you feel about your sister-in-law or about your husband's younger brother for that matter. But suddenly now you're looking at them a little bit differently at the Christmas table than you used to. Friends, the vow is called Leverite marriage and it happens when a wife without a son is widowed so that the family line might continue, so that the name might not be blotted out of Israel and so that the promises of God might be passed down to the next generation. What all of this means is, Onan gets to take Tamar, his older brother's wife, home, now as his own. And for the sake of our godliness together and for my ongoing employment as a pastor, it might be best not to explain too much detail here, although I want to tell you I have so many puns I want to share. But let's, I'm not going to do it, well, maybe one or two. But let's just say that Onan enjoyed the pleasures of marriage to Tamar, but withdrew from his parenting responsibilities. The hope of Tamar having a son and continuing his brother's name fell to Onan because any children wouldn't be his. Onan let that fall to the ground as well. If Ur made wicked errors, but Onan made sins of omission... God put him to death as well because of his sin. Judah is now two sons down and only has a Sheila left. And he wasn't going to lose another one. Look there, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. I want you to see it there. Judah has no intention of giving Sheila to his youngest, giving, giving Sheila his youngest son to Tamar. Because he feared it might happen all over again. He's already lost two sons of his own. And if Judah now loses Sheila, if Judah doesn't have a grandson, well, you can see the problem for yourself, right? Ur and Onan are now dead. Judah has lost two sons. 
Tamar two husbands, who is going to keep the family of line of Judah alive? Tamar is sent home to live with her father. She has no husband, no children and no prospects. And once again, in this family in Genesis, the promised line of Abraham's descendants is looking incredibly fragile and terribly hopeless. But before we move much deeper into this story about Jacob's sons and Judah's, Judah and his sons, I wonder if you've noticed with me Judah's hypocrisy, especially when it comes to his own sons. Judah turns aside from his brothers and marries a Canaanite woman. He takes a foreigner for his two of his sons, both of whom the Lord puts to death. Judah's not living like a child of the promises, is he? He doesn't marry from within the extended family, but yet he enforces Leverite marriage on his own sons. Judah has heard of God's promises, but he doesn't live like God exists. Sorry, he lives like God doesn't exist. Judah is picking and choosing his own obedience. He's picking and choosing his own adventure. His life isn't in alignment with his beliefs. I mean, who's he kidding? And further evidence of Judah's hypocrisy is now starting to show up everywhere else. As Judah now has also become a widow. Inexplicably in the, in, in the story, Shua, his Canaanite wife, has now died. And after a time of comforting and mourning... Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite head up into the hills of Timnah to do a bit of sheep shearing. But what sounds like, what happens next, friends, sounds more like a boy's weekend away or an end-of-season footy trip. You see, Judah might have gone shearing, but he's completely fleeced his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar was sent home to live with her father until Sheila was grown up and ready to commit. But Judah was never going to give Sheila to her. Judah's already lost two sons and his wife. Meanwhile, Tamar's been waiting for a phone that never rings and for a knock at the door that never came. And so when she hears that her father-in-law Judah is now heading out of town for a few days, Tamar takes off her widow's clothes and wraps herself up in a veil as a present having waited for Sheila to arrive for her, having waited for a son of her own to come, only to realise that she's been waiting for no reason at all, Tamar now starts waiting for Judah instead. Now dressed as a prostitute, Tamar waits on the side of the road. See her desperation for yourself in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let, let me come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Judah didn't recognise who she was. And he's not the first one to be deceived by clothing in this family, is he? like tricking a kid that there's something on their shirt and then flicking them in the nose when they look down, how many times will this family fall for the same thing? I mean, what is it with these people? Judah was just involved in a clothing deception. He tricked Jacob into thinking that Joseph was dead. Jacob was involved in a, in a deceitful clothes swap as well, pretending to be Esau to gain his father's blessing. And now Judah has been unwittingly deceived, allured by false evidence of clothing. 
Judah, who wouldn't provide Tamar with his son so that she might have a son of her own, when Tamar, all she really wanted was a kid, is now offering her a goat for her services. Tamar, having already been deceived by Judah once, wants more than a verbal offer from this man. And understandably, she wants some guarantees. She simply won't take his word for it anymore. Tamar wants a down payment. Look there, verse 18. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Friends, this is why the kids downstairs this morning are doing a missionary day. A signet ring, a cord and a staff are like your keys, your mobile phone and your wallet. It's like walking into a bank to open a new account and being asked to provide 100 points of ID. And as a result of their encounter together, Tamar now conceives, that is, she is pregnant. But when Judah sends her to go to pick up his ID, the cult prostitute has never been seen by anyone. No one has ever seen her before. Three months later, at a knock at the door, Judah hears that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is now pregnant. He's furious that she would do such a thing and he wants to have her killed. I'm wondering again if he might see Judah's hypocrisy. Judah is happy to live like a Canaanite himself and to avail himself of cult prostitute services. But when he hears that his Canaanite daughter-in-law, Tamar, is actually behaving like one. Judah issues her with a death sentence. Bring her out and have her burned. They are chilling words, aren't they? Judah issues her with a death sentence. And as she's being brought out for her death, Tamar brings out a bit of evidence of her own. You see, friends, long before paternity tests were available, look there, verse 25. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. What I want you to see is that these are the same words that Judah used in order to deceive his father Jacob about his brother Joseph. Please identify this clothing. His signet, his cord and his staff staring back at him along with the realisation of what's happened. Tamar's evidence is overwhelming. It is undeniable. Judah has been proverbially caught with his pants down. Judah acknowledges he's failed in his duty to her. Tamar, the Canaanite, more righteous than he. And the Lord who took two sons from Judah because of their wickedness is about to provide Judah with two more sons, twins, as a result of his own wickedness. 
the line of Judah will continue through Tamar. And once again, their birth story sounds familiar, doesn't it? Tell me, where have you heard this before? Verse 28. When she was in labour, that's Tamar, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But, then, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. These are the generations of Jacob. Like Jacob and his twin brother Esau, the sons of Jacob, and now these sons of Judah continue to wrestle for position and power and blessing. Despite this sordid, moral, wicked, hypocritical mess, through this complicated web of lies and a veil of deception, the repeated and repetitive human story of lust and sexual impulse and grief and loss and desperation. Can you see that God is keeping his promises? Promises made to Abraham but fulfilled in Jesus. You see, friends, behind all this humanity, humanity, and the hopelessness of our lives and their events and circumstances is the left hand of God who, who is at work behind the scenes in all of life's circumstances. God at work in our mess for his plans, at work in all the details for his eternal purposes. The story of Judah is so seriously messed up that only a good and gracious and sovereign God would possibly ever choose for his son to descend from the line of Judah. Friends, Jesus is a son of Judah. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of, see it there, Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. According to Matthew's detailed genealogy, through the generational promises of God, eventually Perez was the father of King David, and King David eventually fathered another king over Israel. See that with me, won't you? Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The promises of God are generational. They are passed down and fulfilled through a king who not only enters into our world but a saviour king who enters into our very mess as well. A king who comes to redeem us from all of it and who promises to always be with us in it. A king who, unlike Judah, keeps his promises. We can take this son of Judah at his word. A king who, at the announcement of his birth, brings good news of great joy instead of shame and humiliation. God's promises are generational and they are passed down to you. 
So no matter how bad things are for you, no matter how inconceivable things may still yet become for us, God is at work in the very mess of life. He uses our circumstances to fulfil his promises. Our outward circumstances point us to the need for our own inward development. God, taking us deeper in our faith, growing us in our dependence on him through the mess of life. Of course, we think life with God should just be easy, understandable, uncomplicated and uninterrupted. But in a broken and fallen world, friends, that is not only unreasonable, it is unrealistic. God uses the mess of our life to disciple us. Jesus shapes us through life itself. That is the left hand of God. When we stop seeing life as a mess, how terrible it is, how how it used to be so much better, how it could be improved, how it's not like we want, how it's not how it turned out as we imagined it would be, we might actually begin to see God at work in us, God doing his work in us right now, in this very moment. Not only seeing God at work in our lives, but actually beginning to see him at work in the lives of each other. If we look for what God might be doing among us, instead of wishing what he was doing with us, we will see the left hand of God at work. And we might understand life from his perspective. God keeps his promises and they are passed down to you. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, only you know the circumstances of our hearts and our lives as we walk through the door this morning. And despite the smiles and the greetings and the happy eyes, only you know the truth of our hearts and the things that we bring and bear and carry. Would you allow us this morning, Lord Jesus, to place our trust in you, that we might take you at your word. The word that promises that all who come to you who are weary and burdened, that you will give rest. Would you help us to surrender ourselves from the burdens that we've been carrying, to cast all our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. And although we can't see how you are at work in the very mess that we find ourselves in, in the complication and the distractions and the repetitiveness, and the heaviness, and the uncertainty. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your left-handed work. How you use life to shape us. How you are discipling us. How our outward circumstances reveal the inward need we have for you, a saviour. And so we surrender ourselves to you this morning, Lord Jesus. We give ourselves to you once more. And we pray that we would not only know the way and know the truth, 
but that we might live the life that you've come to give us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.